0: i um, really looking forward to this. So I teach at a medical school. So I usually start with a clinical case. So I'm going to do that here too. I know that you all are not in medical school so that you're uh, not going to know the answer to this, but it's to uh, talk about more of a, a general principle. Okay. So uh, this was maybe three years ago. There was a young woman She was, um, I need to make up her biographical information for HIPAA purposes, but um, young woman, say she's 27 years old, um, Hispanic, and uh, she's right-handed. Neurologists always wanna know if you're right-handed or left-handed. It's important to us, but she's right-handed. She was previously healthy. Maybe in the prior two or three weeks, she had a little bit of a viral prodrome, um, upper respiratory infection and got over it and things were going well. She then went, um, she works with young children and she was working with this uh, babies. And one day she just felt this irritability that she couldn't contain. And she started, she was holding this baby and just screaming at it. She was screaming Paw Patrol and she just kept screaming at this baby. And that type of behavior is frowned upon in any work environment, so uh, she was dismissed. So she's driving home, and as she's driving home, she passes a gas station, and there's a car that you could tell had been uh, burnt and had been up in flames, and she saw four dead bodies in it. She then took a left around the corner, and she saw large purple birds that were uh, crossing the street And she pulled over and saying, you know, what is going on? You know, she knew that she was hallucinating. So she called her mother, and her mother came and picked her up and brought her back to uh, her house, to the mother's house. And as she was there, and she stayed there for a couple days, mother was very concerned about her, obviously. And she started to have these paranoid delusions. Every time the phone rang, it was someone trying to get her. Um, and this carried on. If someone was speaking through the uh, on the TV, they were speaking to her. Uh, things became more and more bizarre. From this point, she develops amnesia. She doesn't remember uh, what happened after that. She has these little glimpses of, of a memory. She remembers um, being in a rocking chair in an emergency department somewhere. She remembers being brought to various emergency departments, but no one could tell what's wrong with her. Eventually, it gets so bad that she's admitted to inpatient psychiatry. So she's in uh, inpatient psychiatry, and despite a team of physicians, a team of residents, they're not quite sure what's wrong with her. Maybe it's schizophrenia. Um, Maybe it's um, some delusional thoughts having to do with depression. Uh, But they weren't quite sure. It looked different. Something didn't seem right. And as she was there, she continued to have bizarre behaviors. She would only walk backwards. So she would only walk backwards. She wouldn't wouldn't walk the other direction. Um, She would walk backwards and chant these ominous prayers. And it got more and more bizarre. And as they continued treatment, she became less conversant. And then eventually she stopped speaking altogether. She was mute. And then from mutism, she became what's called catatonic. Catatonia is, um, if you think of a mannequin, catatonia is where the body is stiff and it doesn't move. And if you move it, it's like wax. And you can move it into different positions and it will stay there. Uh, So she started to become catatonic. With catatonia, you try medical treatment and that often fails. And the treatment is electroconvulsive therapy. So they were preparing her for electroconvulsive therapy, and they realized that she had a fever, and her breathing wasn't quite right. And they thought that, well, she must have an infection. So they sent her to the emergency department. So she went through this prodromal viral illness, and then she went through what we call psychosis. And then she went into this, um, what we call hypokinetic state, where you're not moving, kinesis, movement, not moving. So I'm, um, I'm down in the emergency department seeing a stroke, uh, a stroke alert rather, a patient who's, who's suffering from stroke symptoms. And I'm down there, and one of the hospitalists says, there's a patient in bed seven, and um, I know this is uh, psychiatry, and you're not a psychiatrist, um, but would you go in and see this young woman? I said, yeah, of course I will. Uh, I never say no to a consult. Uh, so. Um, So I went in and I went in with three medical students. I always have medical students with me. And uh, so I walked in and there she was just laying there, um, just like this, eyes open. I walked up to her, tried to say her name, no response whatsoever. I got my hands and I flashed them in front of her eyes, didn't blink. I tried to move her extremities and they were just stuck in place. I got close to her face and i saw these um abnormal movements in her face called hyperkinesia and i was looking at them they were semi-rhythmic to rhythmic and uh i looked at my students and you guys know what this is and no one knew Uh, but i uh, i knew what it was i had seen it before in children um does anyone know what it is by the way i don't know just curious uh medical students wouldn't know that either but um Mm -hmm. Uh, Aquinas says in the Summa Theologiae, uh, uh, the prima pars, I think it's um, question two, article two, uh, see if I can remember this. When the effect is better known than the cause, from the effect we proceed to knowledge of the cause. Um, what does that mean? This is how doctors work. We see symptoms, the effects, and we work backwards to the cause, the disease. So we are seeing effects in her, and we work our way backwards to what the etiology, what the cause is. There's only one syndrome in which there's a prodrome, and then it's followed by a psychotic phase, and then it's, it's followed by kind of this hypokinetic catatonia followed by hyperkinesis. It's called anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis. Uh, it's a rare disease, one in 1.5 million. Um, But I had seen it in children, four children in the past. So I knew what it was. So um, at least I thought I knew what it was, right? Um, It takes two weeks to get the lab results back. So you have to to trust that you know what it is and act, right? And a lot of life is that way. So I said, okay, I think I I know what this is and I'm going to act on it. So I, I called the mother and I said, this is what I think. And she said, "Oh, praise Jesus! Uh, someone thinks someone knows what's wrong with my daughter. Go for it." So you know, we got her hooked up and we started treatments. I'll return to her story later about what happened to her. There's different ways of looking at this. If I'm talking to a, another neurologist, I'll I'll talk very specifically about what's happening to this woman. That um, a virus enters the body. There are these proteins or antigens on the virus. The immune system comes to try to kill the virus. It learns what the protein looks like so it can produce more of the immune system to go and attack more and more of the viruses, right? But sometimes the antigen, the thing on the virus, looks identical to a receptor in the brain. So the immune system will start to attack the brain in a process called molecular mimicry. And we can talk about what part of the brain that affects these NMDA receptors have a high density in the hippocampi. all throughout the cerebral cortex. And when this damage occurs, you start to get an increase in excitatory neurotransmitters and dopamine dysregulation, which you get all these symptoms. That's one way of explaining this. You can go into more details about it. Um, There's another way to explain it, that this is someone who's losing capacities. She had a capacity to control her emotions, that capacity is no longer present. Um, she had uh, capacities for controlling movements. Those capacities are no longer present. She has a capacity to perceive reality as it really is. Those capacities are no longer present. Um, she has a capacity to be a conscious person. And those capacities are diminished, are gone. She is now in a coma. So we can talk about it more generally as a loss of capacities. I've been a neurologist for Uh, coming on nine years now, or practicing neurology for nine years anyways. Um, And when you do this for a long time, you start to, mm, it's easy to reduce your person to their organs. So if you're a liver transplant doctor, it's like this is a 67-year-old liver who's presenting today with, you know, so you start to reduce the person to their organ. And there's no area where that's easier than in neurology. I see stroke patients. I see patients who have had hemorrhages. I've seen brain tumors and ALS and and dementias and bizarre conditions. And what they share in common is that there's a loss of human capacity, right? So it becomes easy to reduce the person to one of their organs, or even worse, their disease state. Um, The longer you practice, it becomes easier to do that. So it takes a lot of effort to, to say no to that. Um, when you talk to neurologists or neuroscientists who do this for a living, it becomes almost um, something, some, something kind of almost natural to start doing this, that you start seeing a person like this. Um, whenever we see damage to the brain, we see damage to the mind. And when we see brain death, even if the heart is still going and the lungs are still going and all the other organs are still going, if their brain is gone, we say that the person is dead even if their heart's still pumping, okay? The person is legally dead. So we see death of the brain, we see death of the mind. Uh, So it's a strong temptation to reduce the person to their brain. And of course, if the person is just their brain, then obviously there's no room for a soul, right? Uh, There's a lot of claims in neuroscience, that neuroscience has disproved the existence of, of free will, that neuroscience has located God in the brain, and making a metaphysical claim that because God has been located in the brain, he doesn't exist elsewhere. This is something that we've uh, invented uh, through the evolutionary process. And there's things saying that we can reduce the person to essentially to their brain, and that neuroscience has disproved the existence of the soul. Um, I'm gonna give you a little bit more history of that, okay, to kind of build up that argument. Why is this a strong argument? And then see if it works out, okay? Uh, This is a picture of the brain. That's what it looks like. All right. Um, So I meant to say more, but I'm gonna skip that. All right, so the brain has not always been considered a precious organ. So ancient Egyptians would, uh, in the process of preparing for burial and the afterlife, they would preserve the organs. But the brain, they would put a hook through the nose, the ethmoid bone, and they'd scrape out the brain and throw it away. It was not thought to be an important organ. Uh, Aristotle, who's one of my heroes, thought that our cognitive faculties, uh, thinking, things like that, that it localizes to the heart. Um, Hippocrates thought that it localized to the brain. He was an encephalocentrist, and Aristotle was a cardiocentrist. Uh, so there was this debate about the importance of the brain. If you fast forward to Galen of Pergamon, was a physician to gladiators, and he would witness that people would have um, uh, wounds. Uh, to the head, to the skull. Sometimes the skull would be penetrated with a blunt object or sharp object. And the closer the damage was to the ventricular system, the worse their cognition is. And that's true, uh, but for different reasons than what he thought. And he concluded that our cognitive faculties locate within the ventricles of our brain. The ventricles of our brain are just something that makes fluid, cerebral spinal fluid, and has nothing to do with cognition. Well, at least directly. Okay? Um, So that's where he thought that these cognitive faculties localized. And then uh, things get worse before they get better. Uh, Like Galen, it's like, yeah, sure, I can understand. Um, And then, like, things get bad, right? Uh, So you have the the birth of phrenology. And this is the idea that um, our cognitive faculties localized to our cortex, reasonable, but then that exerts a pressure on our skull, and our skull actually adapts in accordance with the psychological Uh, attributes of our brain so that um, it pushes on the skull, and you can measure parts of the skull and know about the person's psychological dispositions. So they may have like an enlarged area of combativeness, and that is kind of running into conjugal love or something, and like disaster may occur uh, based off of these measurements, and they recommend a treatment or something, right? Um, So this is a pseudoscience, of course. There are no uh, phrenologists still around. Um, but there are equally bad sciences. Okay. Um, so things. Sorry, if you're squeamish. Uh, so this is uh, this is a brain, the skull, and working working the way down to the brain here. So um, the birth of neuroscience. I'll get to that picture in a second. But the birth of neuroscience really takes off in the nineteenth century. So um, Pierre Paul Broca. He followed a man who suddenly became unable to express himself. So he could understand what others were saying, but he couldn't express himself to others. So um, Broca wondered what was wrong with this man. So he followed him around for a number of years until he died. Uh, And then when he died, he took the skull off uh, and looked inside to see where the damage was. So as I'm speaking to you right now, I'm using an area that's called Broca's area, actually. It's named after Pierre Paul Broca. And um, it's in the inferior frontal gyrus on the left. And he saw a necrosis in that area. The person had had a stroke. And he concluded that expressive language comes from that specific region within the brain. A colleague of his um, in um, Germany, at the time Prussia, Carl uh, Wernicke, uh, same methodology. So he followed... Uh, what Broca did, but someone had a receptive aphasia. So as I'm speaking to you right now, you're using your superior temporal gyrus and that gives you the capacity to understand what I'm being, what's being said, your receptive language. Um, same thing, someone had a, a stroke, a necrosis in the superior temporal gyrus on the left and it was concluded that receptive language localizes to that specific region. And then you have John Hewlings Jackson, who's the first to localize motor function to the brain. So he studied epilepsy patients. He meticulously documented what's called the semiology of seizures. A seizure would start in the face and then move to the arm. And he hypothesized that there's an area in the brain that corresponds to this. And then he found lesions in those areas. And this has been proven to be correct. So so on it goes. Now, why didn't we know this stuff before? Well, for the vast majority of history, uh, it was not considered ethical to do an autopsy. So from uh, the Greek and Roman religions, uh, the afterlife was very important. The body mattered a lot. So you did not touch it. Uh, Pope Sextus, I forget his Roman numerals, uh, but in 1448 stated, there's no theological problems with doing autopsy. Be respectful of the body, but there's no problems with it. So we start to learn more and more over time but we still knew very little about the brain. Having um, done a lot of this myself, when I would, uh, for a cadaver, someone who's donated their body to science, if the body wasn't preser- preserved properly, when we remove the skull, the, boor- the brain just pours out its liquid. Um, so you have, to, you have to have refrigeration, and you have to have um, electricity helps. So those things are important. Now, when this first started, they were executed criminals. So no one donated their body to science. This was someone who was an executed criminal, and they would uh, look and see what's going on in the brain. So that was really 19th century, so we started learning more about the brain at that time. Wilder Penfield was a famous neurosurgery uh, neurosurgeon. So we're moving um, into the 20th century. And he was one of the founders of what's called the Montreal Procedure. And I've been in these. Uh, Doing the electrophysiology component of the study. But what you do is you remove the, the skull, patients uh, under general anesthesia, you remove the skull, and then you wake the patient up. Um, and you stimulate certain parts of the brain, like the kayak commercial, I don't know if you guys seen that, where they're like he's booking flights, the neurosurgeon's booking flights by stimulating the brain. It's a little bit like that. Um, so you, you take the skull off, and you stimulate certain parts of the cerebral cortex, and the person will say, my arm is numb. Or they'll even have a flashback of a memory that occurred earlier in life. Um, sometimes they'll hear music that's not actually playing. So all these bizarre things will occur. So, but we, we localize memory now in the uh, temporal lobes. So over time, more and more things are being localized to the brain. Uh, Phineas Gage. Uh, you guys probably know good old Phineas. Uh, he's from my neck of the woods, uh, New Englander. Uh, lived in New Hampshire, where I'm from. So he's, he, we know him up there. Uh, so in, I think it was 1848, he had a steel rod and he was packing dynamite into the ground. And he used to pack dynamite into the ground to blow stuff up. And he was doing this and it ignited the um, fuse early. So the pole went through his orbital cortex and it went through the left uh, orbital frontal region of his frontal lobe. And what was noted was Phineas had... A lot of changes in personality. He had a lot of changes in what's called executive function, planning. Um, if you think of like a CEO of a company, they have very good executive function, or they ought to. Um, and so he, there was this loss of capacity again. Uh, this is an electroencephalogram, uh, electroencephalography. I spend a lot of my day reading these, and these are uh, brainwaves. So uh, this is these are brainwaves. Invented in. Um, 1924 by Hans Berger. So this is a way of looking at the electrical activity of the brain helps us localize things further. CT scans in 1970s, they come into clinical practice. And um, now we can see the brain. X-ray can't penetrate the skull. We can see the brain now. So um, we can see where things are happening. Huge advancement within neuroscience. Uh, This is MRI. Uh, MRIs come about more in the 1990s, technology dates back from before that, but now we're able to really see where things localize in the brain with an MRI. Very precise imaging. And even more advanced imaging has come out. So I'm the director of our stroke program, and um, we are using all these advanced images. So if someone comes in with stroke symptoms, if you look at A, that's a CT scan, uh, it looks pretty normal. I see a small abnormality there, but for our sake, it looks normal. If you look at B, though, one of the arteries is occluded. There's a laser right here. There's no flow. There's a clot right here. And if you look at this blue area right here, this is these are dead neurons. We can't do anything about that. But the red area is everything that's going to die if we do not intervene. If you look at D, um, here's the blockage. You come in, you remove the blockage, you restore blood flow. And instead of the stroke looking like C, uh, it looks like the first image in C. So it's a much smaller stroke. The person is going to have a much better outcome. He's, you know, computer software is amazing. It helps us make all sorts of decisions. And this is a beautiful thing within neuroscience. It it makes a big difference in the lives of people. The functional MRI. Um, functional MRIs, um, 1990s, uh, 2000s, really exploded in the early 2000s. Now there's a neuroscience of everything because of functional MRIs. It's like a neuroscience of selling used cars. There's a neuroscience of every field now uh, because of these things. And and people make all sorts of claims based off of functional MRIs. In reality, uh, clinically, they have very little utility. Um, We use them in epilepsy patients sometimes to plan epilepsy surgery, but overall limited, uh, but cognitive neuroscience really relies heavily on these, among other studies, but relies a lot on functional MRIs. So um, you can, what happens is as I'm talking right now, I'm using Broca's area. And if you did a functional MRI, there's more blood flow to that area because I'm using it. And you're gonna see an increased signal there. And that helps us. So you put someone in, you have them do a task, and then you take a picture, and you're like, all right, that's where it localizes, perfect. So you can do these things where you, uh, you put them in a functional MRI, you, you, pick them with, uh, you hit them with a, a, a pin, or you have them look at a, a picture of their girlfriend or something. And you'll see these areas light up. And you're like, oh, OK, um, empathy. It localizes to the these areas here. Um, so you can look at um, psychological dispositions, uh, things like that. And you can map it out in the brain, say these things localize there. So um, one of the important things here is if we think about psychological attributes, so um, things like memory, acts of the will, reasoning, abstract thinking, uh, it used to be thought, or many thought, that this localized to an immaterial component to the human being, so the soul or the mind. But now neuroscience is saying, no, we, we found these areas on the brain scans. You don't need to posit some other entity, right? Um, Hippocrates, this is Hippocrates, it's probably not what he really looked like, but um, he um, he didn't really need... He didn't need this to to think that things localized to the brain. Here's a quote from um, 2,500 years ago. Men ought to know that from the brain and from the brain only arises our pain, um, sorry, arises our pleasures, joys, laughter, and jests, as well as our sorrows, pains, griefs, and tears. Through it, in particular, we think, see, hear, and distinguish the beautiful from the ugly, the good from the bad, and the unpleasant from the pleasant. So in other words, you're just your brain. So you had these psychological attributes localized to an immaterial component, and we'll talk about that more in a second. Now they're kind of being localized to the brain. Does that make sense? Yeah. So this would be... Um, anyway, you guys know who this is? This is, René Descart- uh, this is Descartes, Rene. Um, so he's looking good. Um, uh, substance dualism. So when people think about... What you're picking between most people think you're picking between substance dualism and you're thinking and you're picking between physicalism that these are the the big these are the options right um, but if you look at substance dualism this is this belief that you have this you're two different substances you have this immaterial substance and you have this material substance of body and that immaterial substance a mind and that somehow these two very different entities one physical one um non-spatial, non-extended, um, and somehow these two things interact. So that's substance dualism. We're two substances that are interacting with each other. Okay? So that's kind of uh, Cartesian dualism. right? But, um, and, and I guess with Descartes, another important thing is like the person is identical to their mind. Okay? A person is a thinking thing, he says. A person is identical to their mind. Okay? So that's an important point to make. But again, it would seem that neuroscience has made Descartes' belief superfluous, right? There's no reason to deposit this immaterial thing. We've explained that the brain does these things, and we've localized all these psychological attributes to the brain, so it's superfluous. At the same time, it's thought that these two substances, because of how radically apart they are, that they can't possibly interact with each other, okay? Um, so there's this interaction problem, and there's other problems with it, too. Um, Just some of the other problems would be ethical considerations. So if the person is just their mind, well, it seems obvious that not all minds are equal. Uh, So it would be very difficult to, uh, when I think about my patients who suffer from mental illness, who are in comas, who have intellectual disabilities, um, it's easy if you think a person is just a thinking thing. um, It can be very hard to find equality there. OK, because minds are not of all the same capacities and powers. So there are some ethical problems that arise. There's also some problems that I think with uh, something called expressive individualism, which is um, probably the most popular philosophy in the United States, is that I'm a disembodied uh, or I'm a, uh, an atomized will. Um, o. Carter Sneed, that's from O. Carter Sneed. I'm, this, um, I'm an atomized will that's kind of contingently, but not necessarily related to my body. My mind says one thing, my body says another, um, but really I'm my mind, okay? Uh, this expressive individualism I think fits very well with Cartesian dualism. Um, and then as a neurologist, there's just this very tight connection between brain states and mental states, and it's hard to see them as two distinct substances. Uh, for Christians, so certainly some Christians in the room, we believe in the resurrection, and um, certainly, that could fit with with substance dualism, but if you're really your immaterial self, then why look forward to the resurrection? Um, so, if I'm really this immaterial self, um, a thinking thing, why well, need a body? If anything, that just limits me. Um, Ed Fazer, in one of his reviews of a book on substance dualism, compared this view to a poltergeist um, inhabiting a vacuum cleaner uh, which I don't know uh, that. That uh, I thought that was funny. Um, so, um, and then there's this um, idea of what's called a, the myriological fallacy. The myriological fallacy is when you um, ascribe an attribute to a part of a thing that can only be ascribed to the whole of the thing. So, um, it's. So if you describe, like um, I don't know, it's not your mind that calls something to mind, right? Uh, The mind is part of you, but it's not your mind that recollects this or the other thing. It's not your mind that turns around and do these types of things, right? It's the human person as a whole who does these things, uh, rather than one of their parts. You can't be what you possess. You can't be one of your parts, so you can't be identical to that thing. So there are a whole bunch of problems with substance dualism, and if that's the only game in town. And some people defend this. There are philosophers Alvin Plantiga, William Lynn Craig, uh, many others that, that support this and are excellent philosophers. And maybe some of you are substance dualists, and there may be better arguments. And maybe I'm uh, really not being kind to this view, but I don't like it. Uh, so um, <laughs> um, so um, if that's the only game in town, then a lot of people... Let me just have a blank slide here. A lot of people have um, turned to physicalism, okay? So physicalism is, uh, there's a kind of general physicalism, but then there's physicalism when we're talking about philosophy of mind. And physicalism holds that humans are purely material beings. There exists no immaterial component to our nature. So nothing like a mind or a soul. And this endorses what's called a mechanistic conception of nature, in which nature is seen as... Um, Completely material, and everything within it is quantifiable. Takes up space, and when you reduce it to physical base properties, uh, there is no qualitative components. There's no like color, taste, smell at the quantum level, which everything is made of. Um, there is no intentionality or subjectivity or things like awareness, right? Um, so it endorses a this kind of mechanistic view. Uh, the most common. Within there, within neuroscience anyway, so within neuroscience, not in philosophy, is what's called mind brain identity theory, mind brain identity theory. And um, this is the belief that a mental state is identical to a brain state. so this is a lot of neurosciences uh, neuroscientists would believe this, right? A brain state is identical to a mental state, so um, Let's say that you hold a belief that the University of South Carolina is uh, in in the year 2022 is better than Clemson at football. Um, That that belief would actually uh, be a group of neurons in your brain. Not that the group of neurons is causing that belief, but that group of neurons actually is the belief that USC is better than Clemson at football. Okay, that should sound bizarre. Um, If um, I was to touch my hand on a hot plate, then it activates something called C-fibers, right? And uh, those C-fibers are going to go to my brain um, and cause pain, or that's how we would phrase it. But this would say that the C-fibers, that that is pain. It doesn't cause pain. It is pain. So uh, we're saying that the brain state, the uh, physical constituents is the mental state. They're identical. Okay? Does that hopefully that makes sense. I hope that makes sense. Okay. Um, so what does it mean for, for two things to be identical? If A is identical to B, then anything true of A will be true of B and vice versa. This would make A and B the same thing. So that's that's a lot. I'll give you an example. Um, let's say that all the uh, properties are the same between Bruce Wayne and Batman, right? The properties are the exact same. Um, it's because that's the same person, right? So um, all the properties of Bruce Wayne are so happen to be all the same properties as Batman. They're the same people. OK, that makes sense? So that's what it means for two things to be identical. They have to be the same. So if we can find anything true of a mental state that's not true of a brain state, then mind-brain identity theory is wrong, right? So Um, uh, how to best explain this so I think um, by way of like analogy just to bring out um, what seems to me obvious anyway so I brought my next door neighbor with me Zach Zach didn't know I was going to call on him though. Um, I drove here and I said I'm going to bring my next door neighbor so I brought Zach Um, and um, so let's say so Zach his wife is in medical school and actually she's dissecting the brain now Um, so Let's say that um, we want to know more about the mental state of romantic love. And Zach loves Rachel. There's no question about it, his wife. So let's say I convince Zach to do an experiment. I'm looking to do some research at the medical school, and they want something groundbreaking. So I, I get Zach. And I say, Zach, I'd like to put you in a functional MRI. And I'd like to take some pictures of you while you're looking at a picture of Rachel. And I want to see what areas of your brain light up. Okay. And he's like, yeah, sure. That's that's fine. Um, so we do it and we, we send him in there and all these things light up the anterior caudate nucleus, um, the putamen and, uh, you know, or anterior cingulate gyrus, um, you know, caudate nucleus, putamen, cerebellum, all these things light up. Right. And we just get this beautiful, Beautiful picture. His caudate nucleus depolarizes in a way like we've never seen, and we're like, that is true love. And so we we get him out of the scanner, and I have all these um, neurosurgeons surrounding me, and I say, Zach, this is going to get kind of weird, <laughs> but this is what we're going to do. Um, hang with me. So we're gonna we're gonna um, these are really talented neurosurgeons. I'm telling you, they're the best. Uh, we're gonna go in there. We're gonna cut out all those areas of your brain, and. Uh, we're gonna get that neural tissue, we wanna study it some more. Zach's hesitant, but I give like a, a lecture on neuroplasticity. I say it's all gonna come back. You're gonna love again, it's gonna be great. So he says, okay, okay, I trust you. Uh, so we do it. And uh so we we carve out very carefully these areas of the brain, and and um we we get this neural tissue and just kind of slap it on a on a table. And um Rachel, uh, who's a medical student, is is walking by. She says, what in the world is that? And I said, that is Zach's love for you. (laughs) Um, So that should seem ridiculous. But if mind-brain identity theory was true, that would be true. That really would be uh, Zach's love for Rachel. But it's obviously not. Now, why isn't it? Well, the properties are different. The properties of love and the properties of neural tissue are obviously different. Neural tissue is made of dendrites and receptors and cell bodies and axons and all sorts of things, right? Um, There's a mass and a length and a width. And um, it can be to the right or to the left of something and all of this. But can love? Um, Seems unlikely. Uh, It seems like the properties are different. Now, philosophers talk a lot about qualia. Um, the, the what it feels like, for example, what it feels like to be in love, what it feels like to hold so- someone's hand or to kiss them, there's a feel to it um, that transcends any description of the physical. It's over and above the physical. There's the subjective experience of human beings. So for Zach, there's something that it's like to be in love. And no amount of studying Zach can really tell us what that's like to be him in that state of love right? Uh, And there's an intentional properties to human beings. We are directed beyond ourselves to it. We love outward. We love other people. We will the good of the other for the other. Um, But material objects don't do that. Uh, Material things like tables, rocks, chairs, um, they're not intentional. They're not about anything, right? Um, So that's one obvious problem. The other one is this multiple realizability that if we're saying these two things are identical, you create these things in philosophy called bridge laws, where um, if a C-fiber is pain, then that means wherever there's pain, there should be a C-fiber firing, because they're identical. But uh, dogs don't have C-fibers. Uh, an octopus doesn't have C-fibers. And they're clearly in pain uh, when, you, when you hurt them. Uh, so strictly speaking, uh, that can't possibly be the case. And then again, the myriological fallacy keeps coming up. It's a fallacy when we talk about people just being their mind, and it's a fallacy when we talk about people being their brain. Um, It's not Zach's um, anterior cingulate gyrus that is in love with Rachel. It's Zach. It is not, um, maybe you're thinking about breaking up with your girlfriend or boyfriend, um, but it's not your dorsal medial prefrontal cortex that's making that decision. It's you, right? So you can't be one of your parts. You can't be one of the things you possess. It's not merely sentimental. It makes no sense, Okay. Um, So that's mind-brain identity theory. Now, there are other forms of physicalism, behaviorism, functionalism, um, eliminative materialism. Uh, We can't go through all of those. But um, when it comes down to it, people have subjective, qualitative, and intentional properties. Matter does not have these properties. Therefore, a person cannot be material. Or purely material okay now okay fair enough um physicalism i think is waning uh not amongst neuroscientists but amongst philosophers now um well what if uh, the brain is really complex is 86 billion neurons in the human brain and quadrillions of connections and uh billions and billions of support cells incredibly complex i've spent I spent 10,000 years, or 10,000 years, 10, it, it, uh, it felt like 10,000 years, I spent 10,000 hours in medical school studying the human body, and in residency, I spent 15,000 hours studying the central nervous system and peripheral nervous system. It is incredibly complex. It's incredibly complex. So perhaps in that complexity, the, from the brain emerges our mental state. So it's not identical to it, but those things emerge from it. So a couple of examples would be like epiphenomenalism. So epiphenomenalism is that um, you kind of have this byproduct, these mental states that are a byproduct of our brain. So it kind of shoots off from it. But with epiphenomenalism, that which is a byproduct of cannot have a return effect on the thing that brought it about. So um, an example would be like, my car makes these terrible noises. Um, there's something wrong with the brakes, I've had them fixed twice, and they keep getting worse. I still drive a 2009 station wagon, even though I'm a doctor. And it is really loud and it's becoming embarrassing, Um, but my wife says it's not in the budget, so I'm still driving this thing, I'm fine with it. I really am, but I'm not. Um, So it's um, the the squeaking, the noises, I can't even describe them, uh, that's an epiphenomenon. It's not having any return effect back on my car, okay? It has an effect on me, but not my car, okay? Um, now, this, this view is obviously false. Um, our beliefs, our mental states obviously have effects. If it's raining outside, or I form the belief that it's raining outside, I, I extend my arm and grab an umbrella. Uh, people often have what are called functional neurological dis- disorders in which um, stress, anxiety, or many other things can cause uh, ways of thinking can cause physical symptoms in the body. Uh, But if epiphenomenalism were true, we would not expect that phenomenon. We send those people to cognitive behavioral therapy and they learn how to think in a better way. And these symptoms often get better, right? Um, But if epiphenomenalism was true, we would not expect that. So no good. Um, Emergentism. So maybe um, from the complexity of the brain, new properties uh, or even a new substance may emerge. Okay, Um, so this can there's many different forms of this and I I can't possibly cover it. This is an this lecture is an overview of things, but emergentism um, so that physical things can bring about either a new immaterial thing, immaterial properties or an immaterial substance. Talk about that one first. So um, this is a quote from a a fellow Thomistic Institute speaker, uh, Marie George, who I very much respect. Um, She says, physical things can act upon other physical things, either imparting new accidents to them, such as warmth or a new location, or causing them to be transformed into another substance, uh, such as when a spark ignites uh, oxygen and hydrogen to form water. But physical things cannot act on another physical thing and thereby turn it into a non-physical thing. There is always some physical underlying matter involved in the physical changes that persists through the change. So a physical thing can't interact with another physical thing and somehow bring about a non-physical thing. Okay, that's the claim, uh, which which I agree with. Um, so now um, there's more to this view. No, okay. Well, perhaps it's not an immaterial thing; it's a material thing with new properties that supervene or transcend over its physical substratum. Um, okay, that is easy to hypothesize, but um, it's very hard to prove and defend. So you just ask, well, how exactly is it that the electrical chemical makeup of the brain brings about um, you know, consciousness or mentality? How exactly is it? So that's the hard problem of consciousness, right? And there's no explanation for that. So it's easy to just say, well, the brain just produces this thing. They're physical things, but they just have unique properties. But physical things all do have some common denominators, such as they're all quantifiable. Uh, but is a concept quantifiable? Again, from Marie George, she talks about if you form the, everything's, uh, physical things are all quantifiable. But if I form an image um, or I conceive, uh, I have a concept of a big dog and I have a concept of a small dog, is the concept of the big dog actually bigger than that of the concept of the small dog? No, not the concept itself, right? Uh, concepts don't have physical parameters, uh, so she would argue. Uh, again, I, I think that's wise. Uh, so I'll make some concluding, science, uh, concluding remarks on the neuroscience component, because that's what I do. And then I'll maybe offer what I think is a promising solution to this, uh, but I'm not a philosopher. Um, So that's kind of my physical, uh, philosophical musing. Um, But what if we reflect on these functional MRIs? So let's say you guys are walking through campus and I stop you and I'm like, um, I don't know where Sean went, but if I'm like, hey, Sean, there he is. "Uh, Hey, Sean, would you be surprised if I told you that when you're thinking your brain is doing something? Would you be surprised? Probably Probably not, Right. Would any of you be surprised if a particular area of your brain was doing something when you're doing a particular task? Would anyone be surprised about that? Of course not. So that's what these functional MRIs are showing us, right? That there's a particular area of the brain doing something, and we can, uh, it's, it's interesting, we can find out what areas of the brain are involved in this process. But there's nothing surprising there. This should not shock anyone. We shouldn't be drawing these metaphysical conclusions from this. Um, You can uh, have all sorts of interpretation of that data. A physicalist is going to look at it and say, yeah, there it is, there's the psychological attributes. Um, Fine. The problem's going to be in the philosophical components. A substance dualist would say, yeah, the the brain or the mind uses the brain as an instrument just like a um, pianist uses a piano to play music. So uh, that's what we see. And they could, fine, sure, the scan can support that or not, fine. Uh, you may be an idealist and think that everything's immaterial and that this is just a projection of the immaterial and a very good one at that. Um, there's all sorts of conclusions that you can draw from this data. Uh, I don't think the neuroscience is very helpful. Um, there's a lot more to that. I'll kind of skip a lot of that, but you know, what, what's a cause? Is there just one cause? What's the difference between something being necessary and something being sufficient? Everyone thinks that the brain is necessary to think. The question is, if is it, is it sufficient? Gasoline is needed for my car to drive, but it's not sufficient. I need other things, right? I need other causes for my car to get from here back to Greenville. Okay, so necessary or necessity and sufficiency is a difference. Okay, but that's in philosophy. Neuroscience aims to identify brain processes and the microbiological substratum necessary for certain human capacities not to make metaphysical claims regarding human nature. That is not within the methodology of neuroscience. Neuroscience makes all sorts of claims, and we need to step back and think about them. I write letters to editors and things. They never get published, but I, I sometimes will write them. There is one that was claiming that the God has been found in the brain, that um, religious experience localizes to the periaqueductal gray matter of the brain. And some people drew from this that God is just in our brain and doesn't exist in external reality because he exists in our brain. That is a really, really bad argument. So imagine I I published a paper claiming that I stimulated the occipital lobe and someone hallucinated an apple, and therefore apples don't exist in the external world. That'd be absurd, right? That'd be absurd. So um, just have an ounce of skepticism uh when you're reading neuroscience we have to cover everything in neuroscience now the neuroscience of like i said used cars the neuroscience of buying sneakers the neuroscience of and then it seems legitimate to us science and neuroscience are downstream from philosophy okay they're downstream from it okay where was i all right sorry going on uh My students say I get like on a TED talk type rants all the time about things, I try not to do that. So, All right, so this is a philosophical endeavor. However, philosophically, it's very difficult to reduce the mind to the brain and say they're the same or that they're identical because the properties of the brain and mind are so different. The same problem also shows up when we try to explain how the brain can produce something radically different than itself. And because of the radical differences between the mind and matter, it's hard to see if they both exist as distinct substances, that they could interact. Last, whether we ascribe psychological attributes to the mind or to the brain, we are ascribing attributes to a part of the human that only makes sense when we ascribe it to the whole of the human. Not only does this not make sense, but again, there are ethical implications to this. Not all minds are equal, and not all brains are equal. But we want equality amongst people, Okay. So is there a better way? I think so. So anyone know who this is? Aristotle? This is Aristotle. So Aristotle had a different philosophy of nature. So for Aristotle to explain anything, um, Aristotle would talk about to explain anything sufficiently, sufficiently, there's that word again, that we need to um, posit four causes for it. So imagine a a wooden table. There was one here that I was going to use, but now it's the check-in table, Um, but where you checked in. We would talk about that this table has four causes to it. It has a material cause; it's made of wood. Okay. It has a efficient cause. That's that which brought it about. So, a carpenter maybe, probably not, but um, a machine brought that table about. That's the efficient cause of the thing. But we want to know more about it. We want to. So you can posit the formal cause of the thing, which in this case would. Talk about the structure, the shape of it. It has four legs, it's rectangular. And then finally, you'd wanna talk about the final cause. What's the purpose of the table, right? What's the purpose of the table? Well, it's to check in at today, but it may be to eat at or to study at. So there's different, uh, these kind of four causes. Now, what would Aristotle, I think, say about these scans when, when he's looking at it? So Aristotle would look at the parts of the brain And he would say, yeah, that's the material cause. Uh, These areas that we see in the brain are the material cause of what we see the person doing, the act that's occurring, the event that's occurring. um, That's the material cause. The stuff, the objects involved, neurons and and the like. Um, He may look at an EEG, and maybe you add that to the functional MRI. And you'd say, yeah, that's the efficient cause. It's the uh, neuro-electrical currents that bring about this act that the person is doing on the functional MRI. But he said that would not explain the whole picture. He would have to posit what's called a formal cause and a final cause. So there, uh, he would be having these metaphysical add-ons, and that would entail, when he's talking about formal cause and final cause, that it would entail things like thoughts, intentions, purpose of why the participants are doing what they're doing, and why they're being scanned. Okay, um, For Aristotle, when he talks about formal causality and final causality, for formal causality, it goes beyond just the structure of the thing. For formal causality, it has a deeper meaning to Aristotle. It's that which organizes and forms and directs the matter of a thing to become that which it is intended to be. In living things, it's that which gives life. It's that which makes a thing alive. Aristotle calls this, in living things, the suke, which means soul. Uh, Plants have a soul. Uh, Animals have a soul, according to Aristotle. Um, and humans have a soul. Now, with plants and animals, he doesn't mean this immaterial thing that survives the death of the plant or the animal. Uh, he means it's that which makes the thing alive, that which organizes the matter of the thing to become that which, is, which it is intended to be. And then with Aristotle, he also sees purpose in nature, That is it's not a mechanistic universe, but there's a deep, deep purpose in the universe. Okay? So that's how Aristotle approaches this. Um, So he believes humans have a soul, a rational soul. Okay, so we're going to talk more about that. We're going to jump to Aquinas. So Aquinas affirms Aristotle. The human person is one substance composed of form and matter. So not like Descartes. This is contra Descartes, where you have two different substances interacting. For Aquinas and Aristotle, we are one substance composed of form and matter. We have corporeal and incorporeal, or material and immaterial aspects to our nature, but not as different substances, as one thing. Okay? The soul is a particular type of form. The soul directs, organizes, and forms, and unifies the matter of a living thing to become that which it is intended to be. For Aristotle and Aquinas, the soul is not a separate immaterial substance that's mysteriously interacting with a material body. It's not a byproduct or emergent entity arising from the complexity of the brain. It's the first principle of life and those things which live. If you go back to Genesis 2.7, it says, "'Then the Lord God formed man "'from the dust the, uh, dust of the ground.'" And this is symbolic language. "'And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, "'and man became a living being.'" It's that which gives life. It's that which makes a thing alive first and foremost. And then it's that which directs and organizes the matter to become that which is intended to be. It's what gives us intentionality, qualitative, and subjective experiences. All living things have a soul, but humans have a rational soul, according to Aquinas. And that gives us the capacity to reason and to will. The intellect and will, Aquinas gives metaphysical demonstrations uh, for this. So it's not based on faith. Uh, We can know this from faith. But uh, through metaphysical demonstrations, he uh, makes arguments that the intellect and will have to be immaterial. Given the capacities they have, uh, that matter does not have, it has to be immaterial. So he gives arguments for that. Um, The soul being immaterial is subsistent, meaning it can survive on its own. So that means it survives the death of the human person, but not as a person, as an incomplete substance that's rejoined Uh, to a new body in the resurrection, according to Aquinas. Now, um, it's fundamental here that Aquinas, Augustine, Boethius, uh, many thinkers of the past think that when we talk about being made in God's image, that kind of imprint of God's image, well, it's on all of us, but it's in having a soul that we're created in the image of God. And for Aquinas and many, that is a very solid grounds for human equality. Okay, we are stamped as image bearers, and that is a firm foundation for equality. Okay, so why does all this matter? I mean, that matters, right? Equality. But why does this all matter? If we get back to um, Brittany, my uh, who I started talking about, who came in with psychosis. Um, So she had a rough hospitalization. When I saw her there in that room, she was rigid and catatonic. She had... um, Um, You you get what's called dysautonomia with this condition where the autonomic nervous system is just totally unpredictable. uh, The autonomic nervous system is this thing that we don't have to think about. Our our heart beating, our digestive tract, our arteries constricting, um, salivating. Uh, Her autonomic nervous system was all over the place. She was just uh, like a leaking faucet. There was just saliva just pouring out of her mouth. Her temperature was up and it was down. Um, We had to intubate her. We had to paralyze her. We needed to eventually put her on multiple um, forms of life support. When I hooked her up to EEG, she was in what's called status epilepticus, uh, meaning she had ongoing seizure activity in her brain that we couldn't see in her body. We had to treat her out of status status epilepticus. I uh, did plasma exchange. We hooked her up to a machine that removes the plasma in your blood Cleans it out, puts new plasma back in to get rid of those antibodies that are attacking her brain. We did that over 10 days. I gave her high doses of steroids to lower her immune system. I, um, I spent an absurd amount of time taking care of this patient. Uh, Continued to work with her with her diminished capacities. She was in the hospital for, uh, in the ICU for maybe a month and a half, maybe two months. Uh, People oftentimes think I'm crazy when I'm still going. I'm like, no, we're gonna we're gonna do this. She um, all sorts of just terrible things, um, but anyways, she starts to recover. She starts to wake up and get better. Uh, we end up um, she's traked, meaning you can only intubate someone so long, so it's going through the neck. Uh, but she comes off the ventilator and she's doing quite a bit better, which is wonderful, wonderful. Um, She goes to rehab after being in the hospital for at least a month and a half in the ICU. And then she relapses again. Uh, Despite putting on her on immunosuppressants, she relapses again. We go through the whole thing again. Um, A year later, I saw her in clinic last week. She's walking, she's talking, she has some migraines. That's the one thing left, uh, residual. She has some migraines. She's had children since this time. She's a mother now. Um, She had a beautiful recovery. It has not recurred. Uh, She's doing well. She's off all anti-seizure medicine. She's off all medications except for her migraines. Um, Again, as we continue to see people who have diminished capacities, it can be easy to give up on people. It can be easy to see them as less than human. Uh, I think If someone endorses physicalism uh, or that we're identical to some physical thing like our brain, our brains diminish in capacity as we age or through disease or through immaturity. Our minds likewise. It's important for equality, um, for loving people well, to always see them as a whole person. And this isn't, again, this is not merely sentimental. It makes no sense to do otherwise to say that someone is a part of themselves just makes no sense. Saying that someone is their brain, that's not true. They possess a brain, they can't be their brain. To say someone is their mind at the same time uh, does not make sense, It is a myriological fallacy. So one of the, I think, terrible things about, and again, this temptation for doctors, and this is a temptation for all of us, we try to abstract away from the person, the things that are most important about the person. So a lot of times, you know, Christians talk about the concept of sin, right? And that is often one of the cases, right? So um, in the parable of the sheep and the goats, you have this um, wonderful, you know, quote from Jesus, what you have done for the least of these brothers and sisters, you have done for me. Why is that true? The, the homeless, those who are in prison, the widowed, children. Why is that true? It's because each person is made in the image of God. So, what we do for the least of them, we have done for God. Um, in serving the poor, we are serving uh, Christ himself, okay, because they bear his image. Um, When we abstract away from patients in the hospital and we see them as their disease, we're doing them a great disservice. If I see them as their mind or their brain, I'm doing a great disservice, especially if they're losing capacities. Um, The same is true in life. If you uh, use someone as a means to achieve some end, you want money from them. Um, You are using someone who's made in the image of God as a means to a selfish end, if you are, um, you know, things like lust, pornography, things like that, you are abstracting away the thing that is most beautiful and most precious from the patient and leaving it behind as it does not exist. And you are just looking at this physical constituent for your own pleasures. Um, It's deeply problematic, deeply problematic. Okay and it's just terrible for your brain. Uh, So we, we remind that, we remind ourselves of that, okay? A person is not reducible to their soul or their body or any of their parts, including their brain. A person is a holistic unity of body and soul. The parts of the human are possessed by the human and each part is subordinated to the whole. In other words, humans are irreducible. You can think about a painting the artist has a, an image in her mind about a painting, and each stroke each stroke of the brush is subordinated to the whole, the image. Um, think about the human person that way. A human person is not just a group of cells, okay? Just like a painting is not a bunch of brush strokes, okay? Um, It's important to know that we have bodies. I know that should sound obvious to us, but we have bodies. We are vulnerable. I'm a doctor. I see this all the time. We are vulnerable to disease, to famine, to poverty, all these things, right? We are vulnerable. It's important to know that, to see that, and to know that that would be a possibility for you. If things had been different, you may be in that state. And that should give you a sense of empathy towards your brothers and sisters. Okay. We have bodies. We are not forgetful of that. Okay. And last, we have a soul. We possess a soul. Okay. Um, so we see um, our our neighbors for for what they are. They they they're in the image of God. We are. We we want equality. I want it too. You know that. Whether regardless of gender, regardless of age, regardless of socioeconomic status, race, religion, that all people are equal, we, we are fighting for this. And that's good. That is very good. But it needs to have a solid foundation. Okay, it, it can't have a solid foundation in materialism or in physicalism. Okay, No one has the same amount of atoms. And I don't think it can be found in this kind of individual express, you know, expression uh, of our nature, this individual expressivism. I don't think it can be found there either. It's, it's in humbling ourselves and seeing others as also embodied, but again, also as having a soul, which gives them infinite worth, okay? Um, so uh, for for uh, Christians in the room, uh, not all of you are Christians and that's wonderful. Uh, my goal is always to talk to non-Christians. <laughs> so um, I, I love that if any of you are here, it's wonderful. Um, for for Christians, uh, I would say, for Lent. Uh, Lent started yesterday, Ash Wednesday. My challenge to people would be to kind of, again, see your neighbors as what they are. Do not abstract away from people what's most precious. And what does that mean? What does that mean? It means refraining from lusting after people. Our biology does that, but as it comes about, no. Refraining from using people as a means to an end. Um, All of those types of things. Refraining from those things during Lent. Seeing yourself and others, feeding the poor, almsgiving, these types of things. Praying for others, especially uh, your enemies. Uh, That would be kind of my challenge during Lent. That's all I have. Um, I'm happy to take questions now. And I had this quote by Aquinas, and I forgot, but that—that's it. I think it's a cool quote. Yes, a great. What's that? Repeat the question. Yes, thank you. Um, I will try to repeat the questions for the audio recording. I'm very bad at that. Um, the question was, what leads to a disorder like Brittany had? So um, it's a process called uh, molecular mimicry, in which a virus enters the body. It now, why are some people prone to this and others not? I, I don't. No one knows that actually but it's this process of the immune system getting confused, seeing an antigen um, that looks similar to a receptor in the nervous system, and the immune system's doing its job, but it misread things, and now it's attacking the brain. So that's what, what leads to it. You form these antibodies, in this case B-cell mediated, you'd form these antibodies, anti-NMDA receptor antibodies that would attack a specific receptor in the brain which has tons of downstream effects on neurotransmitters, so that's what happened. This is something as a neurologist, I see. I do a lot of neuroimmunology, so we see a lot of this and um, fascinating disorders. Um, and they're disorders for which, if you catch them early, uh, people can do really well. So she could have just picked up that virus at work or eating. Or- yeah. So where did she get the virus? Yeah, you know, she she works with children. Um, so, I mean, that's like. We have two kids we're in like the virus of the week club so like every week we're getting some new virus and um, i probably have one right now uh so um but yeah that that's how it that's how it comes about yeah yeah i like it so um sure let me uh let me talk about that a little bit so the question the question was um what do i think about electrical activity in the brain uh, maybe is there an immaterial component to it? What happens at death with the electrical activity of the brain? Um, so interestingly, Hans Berger, the guy who invented EEG, one day he was, uh, when he was a kid, he was um, he was out um, riding a horse. I think it was a horse. And he was thrown off the horse and injured. And his sister lived in a different town. And she suddenly got this premonition that he fell off a horse and was injured. So she sent a telegram uh, to the farm and said, you know, are you okay? He became convinced that the electrical, that there's something in the brain, this was before electrical activity was discovered, that uh, could transmit distances and allow people to know what's going on. So he invented the EEG in 1924 and showed that there was electrical activity in the brain. That's a really sad story, actually. He was mocked for for this discovery and committed suicide. Um, which is like, a, that's a real downer. You can edit that off the podcast. Um, so, um, but in regards to electrical activity, electrical activity to me, and I'm, I'm not a physicist, uh, would be a physical thing. Uh, the immaterial, our immaterial nature does not consist of anything material at all, including electrical activity that when the brain dies, the electrical activity of the brain ceases. And we have patients that are on, electro- with, uh, on EEG. And when they die, the electrical activity uh, is, is gone. Um, but uh, as a um, part of a substance, their soul continues to live on, but um, not because of uh, electrical activity, would be my answer. Uh, yes, sir. Yeah, welcome. Are you uh, recovering after the talk, uh, or okay? I get these questions a lot um, from from when I do these talks. What do you say to your you know colleagues who who are materialists? Um, so what what you're describing is very sim- similar to functionalism, and um, the full conclusion of that is like they, some people say there is no such thing as the sun. Yeah. Them, yeah. Like Sam are, Harris. I mean, it's ridiculous. Who's saying it? I am. Uh, well, there you go. So, um, yeah, so that's, that's pretty bankrupt. Uh, yeah. I mean, I say all sorts of things. I mean, it's, I don't know. Um, again, it goes back to the, the properties of matter, um, the properties of our capacities and how there's a, um, they're not the same. Um, there's, there's all sorts of arguments and I can't go through them, but in philosophy of mine about bats and zombies and um, all sorts of uh, arguments, uh, there's tons of arguments, uh, you can read David Chalmers, uh, arguments against functionalism, uh, arguments um, from, uh, you know, a lot of them are familiar uh, inverse color spectrums and things like that. There's all sorts of arguments against functionalism. In regards to colleagues, um, so what I remind myself is my, my colleagues don't think about this very much. Um, they're very intelligent people. I respect them tremendously. But what I was talking about this first part, right? That you just see someone lose their capacities over and over and you, it just becomes a natural thing that you're not thinking about it. It, it accumulates over time in you that people are just physical things as a, as a neurologist or that they're just their brain. It takes a lot of effort to get out of that and to look at it. Um, my colleagues spend the vast majority of their time Treating people who are coming in with hemorrhages and seizing and having a large stroke and all of these things. And they are dedicated to that. And very few of them think about these philosophical issues. But I love to talk to them about it if they're willing to and ask them questions. And they start to see, oh, wow, yeah, the properties are very different. What do I do with that? You know. Um, so that's, that's what I have to say. Yes, sir. Um, I'm actually coming from a perspective. I'm a long-time agnostic, but I think sure. It's the best. One of, <laughs> my, um, one of the things that I'm very curious about is yeah, sure. What's your name? Matthew. Matthew is a good biblical name. <laughs> uh, Zach, can you write down Matthew? We're gonna pray for you, Matthew. Um, so um, yeah, let me let me think about that. So there's a lot of kind of questions there. Agnosticism. Um, the soul. So I'd, I'd say a few things. So like I said, I quoted Aquinas at the beginning that when the effect is better known than the cause from the effect, we proceed to knowledge of the cause. Okay. Um, so in regards to the existence of God, we can look at things around us and you can develop things like cosmological arguments and teleological arguments. Um, from within us, we can develop um moral arguments for the existence of God, um, arguments for the existence of God through religious experience. Um, So there's all sorts of philosophical proofs uh, that God exists, and I think that they work with exception to the ontological argument. Um, So yeah, um, agnosticism. Um, So in regards to the soul, I actually, and I wrote it down, but I didn't write it here, I didn't bring it with me. I think that the soul is an argument also for the existence of God. It seems highly probable to me that if the soul exists, God exists as well. And I wrote down this like these this syllogism for it and I forgot to bring it. But I, I, I think that uh, if the soul exists, it seems very likely that God exists. I, I don't know where it would have come from otherwise. Uh, so you have gone, I have, uh, you have gone. I have, uh, did you already go? No, no. okay, go ahead. Oh, no, that's not good Uh, for, you know, I need to explain it better if that's the case. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So a lot of what I said plays into it, but a lot of it is, is just, um, uh, um, it kind of sounds corny, Christians say this, but it really is a relationship with, with God. And when I sit down and I study, I invite the Lord, he's present. He's always present, but I recognize that the Lord is present and I invite him into my studying. And when I do that, not only uh, am I cognizant that he is there, but I deeply appreciate what I'm learning because it's what he has created and what he has created is good. And when I learn about the brain and all of its wonderful complexity, I just thank God for it. Uh, I marvel at his creation. Um, and I carry that as a doctor. It It infiltrates, it permeates what I do as a doctor in terms of how I relate to my patients. They're image bearers. So, yes. Yes. I can probably take one more uh, question, and um, maybe two if they're fast. Uh, uh, I'm going to go with you, and then if there's time, I'll go with, with you, sir. Uh, yes, go ahead. I'll make it quick. And um, I'm not repeating the questions, you. I'm sorry, but go ahead. Thank you for your talk. Um, yeah. it was very insightful. But so my first question was, how does your insight play into your practicing episode? Position, yeah. yeah, so yes, um, so the again, the the part regarding mental illness, it's so many people, especially with neurological diseases, the same organ. So mental illness is extremely common. Um, it's remembering that I have a body. I have a body that's vulnerable. And if circumstances had been different. I too may suffer from mental illness. Uh, many people have been abused. Um, just so many people do terrible things to people. Um, it doesn't mean everyone has an excuse, but those who suffer from mental illness have a disorder of the brain. Um, and I realize that I too have a body and could be in their shoes. That's one part. Two, again, that they have a soul, um, that they are imprinted uh, as image bearers. And you don't have to be a, a Christian to be made in the image of God, all humans are. Um, so they're treated with respect. What I've done for the least of these, I have done for Christ. Um, so that, and as a physician, it there's a lot. There's a lot that plays into that. There's um, knowing that God can work miracles. I know I, I don't talk about these things much, but as a physician, when you're prayerful and cognizant of God through the day, uh, you see things. Uh, you I don't mean like weird, like I'm seeing like angels all over the place, but like... You see outcomes that just wouldn't be expected, and prayer has played a role. Um, I remember I had a a man, uh, real briefly, who was in a coma just like Brittany was for two months. Um, And I saw him for like, I guess he was was in a coma for one month. Um, And I saw him, same thing, you know, I went in, open your eyes, do this, do nothing, coma walking down the stairs and i just felt this prompting um what i call an oceanic tug uh, and that that to me is the holy spirit go back and i went back into his room and i leaned over him and i said i'll call him tom tom open your eyes Open them um you know these these things happen, um, and I know we're kind of almost embarrassed to mention these things because we're all in the scientific age, but the, when you live by faith, um, when you trust that the Lord is at work and can do things, um, uh, the unexpected may occur, okay, uh back there, and then we have dinner reservations in five minutes, um, so <laughs> we're in no rush, I guess. go ahead, sir. Ah, <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. So I know that's the challenge, right? Um, So one, in computer science, uh, I think we mean something abstraction. Yeah. Pulling something, that means just to pull something out of something and and just focus on that one thing. Um, Whereas abstract reasoning is something that computers cannot do. Uh, Only humans can do that. And that is an immaterial aspect of of human nature. Um, Anyways, the Yes, I have to abstract away from the person. I have to look at their disease. I have to look at their brain. When I'm looking at their brain on an MRI, I'm abstracting something from them, but not at the sake of their dignity. And I'm cognizant that entire time that I'm abstracting. The problem is sometimes when we abstract, we forget what we left behind. Um, That's the story of the enlightenment um, with morality. That's the story of the enlightenment with, with scientific revolution efficient causality, material causality, or material causes. We can measure those things, but we have left behind final causality. What's the purpose of the thing? And formal causality. We forgot that it's still there. Um, It's still there. Okay. So so that's it for, for today. It's been such a pleasure talking to you guys. God bless you.